Oh. I hope you didn't start Roger Lewis last night. Oh. On the last show, we recommended streaming Roger Lewis in deep leagues. And that was a mistake. Roger Lewis is what a failed streamer looks like in fantasy football. Last night, one reception for two yards on four targets. 1.2 fantasy points. It's really bad. But if you look inside the performance, how bad was it really? Well, on the other targets, Roger Lewis dropped a long reception that would have given his team a first down and extended a drive. He then ran a wrong route, and then he fell down on a route that became an interception. <laughs> and then he was benched for Tavares King. That's a bad day at the office. He comes home dejected. How was work today, honey? Don't ask. Roger Lewis was the asymmetric wide receiver tout of the week. I love touting Roger Lewis because I could say, Roger Lewis, yay! A starter and a pass-happy offense, multiple touchdown upside, worst-case scenario, 1.2 points, but you were only playing him out of desperation or in very deep leagues. Expectations are low, so if he doesn't produce, I don't feel bad and I don't receive any blowback. If he does well, we celebrate Roger Lewis dance party, yay! I love the asymmetric wide receiver tout. Mike Clay is also on board with the asymmetric tout. He had the asymmetric running back tout last night, Paul Perkins. But instead of just touting Paul Perkins on his show during the week and just letting it sit out there, hoping he hits, Mike Clay started tilting on Twitter, lamenting the fact that Paul Perkins wasn't getting enough touches. If the Giants could just give Paul Perkins more touches... And then everyone would be able to see just how great Paul Perkins is. Right, Mike? That's what Mike Clay thought. And that's what the Giants did. They ended up giving him nine carries and three targets, 12 opportunities. And what did Paul Perkins do with those opportunities? Zero catches and 31 total yards. Rashad Jennings, on the other hand, 15 carries, 87 yards, 5.8 yards per carry. The team needed to salt away the game in the fourth quarter. They gave the ball to Rashad Jennings, not Paul Perkins, and Rashad Jennings put the game away. Because Rashad Jennings is an above-average running back, Paul Perkins is an average running back. Nothing on the Paul Perkins profile would lead you to believe that he's a special talent. At least Roger Lewis has a well above average college dominator and college yards per reception. Nothing exciting about the Paul Perkins profile. And there was Mike Clay looking foolish, cheerleading Paul Perkins all night on social media. Mike Clay and I both love the asymmetric tout, but I'm not going to be out there on social media insisting the Giants target Roger Lewis more. No, 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 no. I'll tout him on the show and then put a blanket over my head while the game is going on and hope that he's not dropping passes, not running the wrong routes, and not falling down and creating interceptions. There's much more downside than there is upside to in-game tweeting, demonstrated by the Paul Perkins fanatics last night. But Mike Clay admitted on Twitter that the reason why he was cheerleading Paul Perkins was because he owned Paul Perkins on his fantasy teams. He wrote a letter to the Giants, please give Paul Perkins more touches, sincerely, a biased fantasy owner. So I have a question. Why does Mike Clay have fantasy teams? If he's admitting that the existence of his fantasy team creates a bias, influences his judgment, why does he have fantasy teams? ESPN and Yahoo pay Mike Clay for his weekly projections. 
So why would he have fantasy teams that could potentially taint his feelings about players and by extension influence his weekly projections? If Matt Kelly were synonymous with weekly projections, if I was the most trusted name in fantasy projections, I wouldn't be in any fantasy leagues. Of course I wouldn't. Certainly none with any stakes. We do projections for playerprofiler.com. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings every week and see our projections. I'm not in any leagues with stakes that could influence those projections. I'm in a couple fun Roto Underworld listener leagues and some free fantasy writer leagues. That's it. We've been saying buy high on Melvin Gordon for weeks now. I own Melvin Gordon in zero leagues. Earlier in the year, we were touting Devontae Booker. I own Devontae Booker in zero leagues. I own LeGarrette Blunt in more leagues than any other running back. And we've touted LeGarrette Blunt very little on this show. Why? Because LeGarrette Blunt's not interesting. We all know what LeGarrette Blunt is. We all know what LeGarrette Blunt's situation is. There's nothing to talk about with LeGarrette Blunt. He's an RB1 in fantasy. We've known this since Evan Silva came on with us in August. And we talked about how LeGarrette Blunt was the best value running back in all of fantasy, being drafted in rounds 11 and 12. Blunt's ADP was a farce, and he became an RB1 in fantasy as predicted, and there's been nothing to talk about. But if you're going to make a living based on your player projections, you need to actively search for any biases and remove them from the equation. You should not be in any fantasy leagues with stakes. Do you see fantasy analysts brag about how much of a certain player they own in their fantasy leagues? And all I can say is, you're not a fantasy gamer. You've positioned yourself as an analyst. If you want to be unbiased, you shouldn't be in any leagues that matter. Next year, I am considering renouncing all the fantasy leagues that I currently belong to in order to remove any my guy bias from my analysis. It's the right thing to do. If you're in the predictions business, why would you allow a bias to infect your judgment? Willingly allow it to affect your judgment. Mike Clay admitted last night that the fact that he owned Paul Perkins was influencing his judgment. So you can do one of two things. You can diversify and say, I'm, I'm about a lot more than projections, which is what I do. We provide rankings as a service. It helps to fund the whole playerprofiler.com enterprise. But we're more about providing data and letting you make your own judgments than telling you who to start and who to sit. The data analysis tool on playerprofiler.com is much more powerful than the player rankings tool. And fantasy analysts can learn a lot from Nate Silver from ESPN's 538. It's dangerous to specialize solely in predictions. It's dangerous to carve out an identity and a brand specifically tied to the precision of your predictions of the future. It's a precarious position you put yourself in professionally. So if I'm Mike Clay, I look at Nate Silver's failure to predict the election as a warning signal. A single missed election can ruin you if you're Nate Silver. A single bad year of projections can ruin you if you're the guy whose brand is tied solely to projections. And if you're going to make prediction, either bet on the sure thing, bet on David Johnson, or go the asymmetric route. Lead the charge, waving the flag for Paul Perkins or Roger Lewis. And if it doesn't work out, oh, shrug your shoulders and walk away. No one got hurt, but you did get hurt if you played David Johnson in GPPs last week. On the playerprofiler.com DFS lineup genius, we pulled David Johnson altogether. You did not see David Johnson in one of our GPP lineups. 
Why? Because David Johnson was owned in 90% of cash games last week. 90% of lineups had David Johnson in them in DraftKings cash games last week. And that was a mistake too. Because at some point, ownership matters even in cash games. Of course, you can't play David Johnson in a GPP at 90% owned. And what happened? The winning millionaire maker lineup did not include David Johnson. It included Le'Veon Bell. And in cash games, if you see everyone playing David Johnson and an equivalent running back talent is on the board in the form of Le'Veon Bell or Ezekiel Elliott, why not just take Le'Veon Bell or Ezekiel Elliott in that spot? That would be the easiest way to cash. So many of you lament the fact that you can't reach the pay line in these DFS double ups because when the chalk implodes, you implode with it. Then it's your under the radar players versus another guy's under the radar players. And a lot of times the other guys under the radar players score more than yours. Why not take control of your own destiny? When an expensive player is over 50% owned, just walk away even in cash games. I understand the free square running back is something you can't get away from in cash games. Yes, I get it. The value is so incredible, you can't walk away in cash games. Understood. The first week Devontae Booker is thrust into a starting role, you play him regardless of ownership. But Devontae Booker wasn't 90% owned in his first week as a starter. And he wasn't nearly as expensive as David Johnson. David Johnson was the ultimate stay away in GPPs last week, but it was also difficult to make a case for playing him in cash. So many of you that didn't reach the pay line in cash games last week, looking at the teams that did, not seeing David Johnson and shaking your head. Look at this guy cashing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't even play David Johnson. Yeah, maybe he is playing a different game than you, but maybe the game he's playing is on a higher level. Now, we have a buzzard-heavy show today. Going to take a lot of buzzard questions. Any and all buzzard questions that we've received will be answered today. I never do this. I pick and choose the buzzard questions that I want to read. I'm not going to do that this week. This show does not discriminate. We treat all buzzards equally. All questions are considered good questions. If you emailed the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com, or you tweeted us at rotounderworld this week, we will read your question. The first question is, oh God, really? <laughs> okay, here we go. I said I would read them all and I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to break my promise. If you ask, I will answer. The first buzzard question. What do you do with Josh Huff? Oh, God. Really? Really? We never liked Josh Huff. When Josh Huff was drafted in the third round by the Philadelphia Eagles, we said he was overdrafted. Why? College dominator. Josh Huff was a prolific wide receiver at the University of Oregon because of the system he played in. Best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, Quentin Patton. If you're 5'11", 206, and you run a 4.51, that's a 96.9, 58th percentile height-adjusted speed score, your college dominator better be good. You better be in the 80th percentile or above. You better look like Willie Sneed, and he's not Willie Sneed. So when Josh Huff was arrested and charged with possession of a handgun with hollow point bullets, he was cut. Then later he was signed to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers practice squad. Tampa Bay cuts Austin Safarian Jenkins, a more talented player, 
because of a DUI. Then they signed Josh Huff, a less talented player who was arrested for possessing illegal firearm ammunition. Hmm. Hmm. Try to figure out the ethical code behind those decisions. Spoiler alert, you can't find one. But it raises a larger question. Does a single mistake, even a horrendous one, a despicable one, should that mistake define an individual and prevent them from participating in the craft that is their profession, in this case, professional football? I don't have a good answer for that. Because if Josh Huff approached me and said, I'd like to write for Player Profiler, I'd say no. If you want to write about the incident, then sure. But he's not going to do that on playerprofiler.com. He's going to do that on the Players' Tribune. If he wants to write a fantasy football article, I would say no. I don't want to be associated with an individual with that arrest record. I just don't. A lot of employers would look at Josh Huff's record and say, no, thank you. This is actually a very interesting question because there is a real conundrum with the Josh Huff situation. No one wants the guy carrying hollow point bullets in their workplace, but we can't have everyone with an arrest record unemployed. It would make our society exponentially more unsafe if we did that. So those that make mistakes, even heinous ones, need to be given second chances, opportunities to reacclimate into society. But every employer also needs to have the right to say, no, thank you. I don't want someone with that background in my workplace. So my answer to the question, what do we do with Josh Huff is, I don't know. If Josh Huff is valuable enough for a team to withstand the PR impact of signing him, then he'll continue to work in the NFL. If not, the hope is he finds a profession outside the NFL where someone with his track record will be accepted and has an opportunity to succeed. Next buzzard message. Who is Bryce Petty? This is why I don't answer all the buzzard questions. Some of them are impossible to answer, like the Josh Huff question, or not interesting, like this Bryce Petty question. Who is Bryce Petty? Bryce Petty is a below-replacement-level NFL quarterback. The end. He's like Derek Carr if Derek Carr had no velocity. He's big. He's athletic. He's smart. He was incredibly efficient and productive at Baylor, a spread offense. But Bryce Petty is the Josh Huff of quarterbacks, a system player at the college level that lacks the necessary traits to be a productive starter in the NFL. Josh Huff lacks the requisite size-adjusted speed and size-adjusted burst. Bryce Petty lacks the arm strength. He cannot push the ball downfield. You cannot play Quincy Nunwa or Robbie Anderson or Devin Smith especially when Bryce Petty's at quarterback. You still have to play Brandon Marshall, but you don't have to like it. And the only player it helps is Bilal Powell. Counterintuitively, Bryce Petty does help one player, Bilal Powell. Why? Because Bilal Powell is the check down hot read. And the fearful game managers with weak throwing arms are forced to check it down, are forced to throw shallow passes. Bryce Petty can only throw the ball 53 miles per hour. That's 22nd percentile. Almost all of the successful NFL quarterbacks can throw 55 miles per hour plus. The quarterback gurus also questioned Bryce Petty's throwing motion. It's one thing if you're criticizing Teddy Bridgewater's throwing motion, yet he's still able to accurately throw the ball downfield. At that point, criticizing Teddy Bridgewater's arm mechanics is irrelevant. But with Bryce Petty, if his arm mechanics are poor and his velocity is low, that's a giveaway that this isn't an NFL caliber quarterback. 
Petty will probably settle in as a subpar NFL backup. He'll be on the back end of the backups in the NFL. Yeah, Bryce Petty is a lower-tier NFL backup. That's what he is. And when he's thrust into a starting job, you cannot stream him, and you have to discount all the receivers while adding a premium to Blau Powell. Next buzzard message. What would Jarek McKinnon be on Dallas? Well, he'd be better, that's for sure. The Vikings are averaging 2.7 yards per carry as a team. That according to Rich Rebar, at Lord Reeves. Oof! And the last time a team averaged under 3.0 yards per carry, 1994. That's how bad the Minnesota Vikings run game is because the Minnesota Vikings have the worst run-blocking offensive line in football. We've been saying this for weeks. It's why you can drop Jarek McKinnon even though Jarek McKinnon is one of the better running back talents in the league. And it doesn't matter if he has nowhere to run. What would Ezekiel Elliott be on Minnesota? Much worse. Melvin Gordon suffered behind one of the worst offensive lines in football last year. One bad rookie year, and Melvin Gordon was being dismissed in all fantasy formats. Dynasty, redraft, made no sense. Traded for 20 cents on the dollar in Dynasty. One bad season, betrayed by an offensive line. That's what would have happened to Ezekiel Elliott had he ended up in Minnesota. But Ezekiel Elliott didn't end up in Minnesota. He ended up in the best possible situation, Dallas. But the Dallas Cowboys have been a great situation for running backs for years. Go back to 2014, DeMarco Murray led the NFL in rushing yards by a wide margin because the Cowboys have had the best run-blocking offensive line in football for a long time. Great run-blocking and great pass-blocking. Tony Romo was the most efficient quarterback in the NFL in 2014. Tony Romo was sublime behind that offensive line. And beyond DeMarco Murray and beyond Tony Romo, the player that benefited the most from that offensive line in 2014 was Des Bryant because Des Bryant was the most efficient fantasy WR1 in the NFL in 2014. Des Bryant was a WR1 in fantasy on less than 150 targets. How did he do it? How did he do it? He got the most out of every target because Tony Romo had plenty of time to place those targets to Des Bryant perfectly. And if the touchdown that wasn't called a touchdown, that Des Bryant scored but didn't score against Green Bay, if that would have counted, that would have significantly disrupted the NFL fandom space-time continuum. Why? Because Dallas Cowboys fans are the worst. The worst! Cowboy fans being douchier than Patriots fans this year was the upset of 2016. Here's a tweet from a Cowboys fan yesterday. Called out of work. They don't deserve my presence. The office is full of people that are fans of NFL teams that aren't 8-1. and one. I can't relate to those teams. That's not a single outlier Cowboy fan. That's every Cowboys fan. And here's a Cowboy fan buzzard message. What is Des Bryant's fantasy outlook for the rest of the season? Started talking about it earlier. Des Bryant was the most efficient, highly productive wide receiver in the NFL in 2014, and then he broke his foot. And what happens when you break your foot? It takes a long time to come back to full health. We're seeing that now with Julian Edelman. We saw it with Sammy Watkins before that, and we saw it with Julio Jones before that. This idea that Sammy Watkins would be back 
for week one and healthy, ready to go. Sammy Watkins, all systems go. Makes no sense. Sammy Watkins can play at 100%. It's just a pain tolerance issue. What are you talking about? Drafting Sammy Watkins in the third round after he broke his foot three months earlier made no sense. And I'm not even a doctor. But knowing I'm not a doctor allows me to say it doesn't make sense because all I have in front of me is the data on foot injuries, which tells me you can't come back after three months and be anything close to what you were before. So I can either look at the data and base my Sammy Watkins projection on that, or I can listen to some nonsense medical narrative from a fantasy analyst that doesn't know what he's talking about. Sammy Watkins is going to be all systems go. Except that conflicts with everything we know about foot injuries. Are you a doctor? No. Then why are you pretending to be one on a fantasy show? Des Bryant broke his foot in 2015. The recovery process is long, but he's finally back. And what does it look like when Des Bryant's back? Last week against Pittsburgh, nine targets, six receptions, 116 yards, and a touchdown. That's what Des Bryant does. He converts catches at a catch rate above 60%. He accumulates a lot of yards per target, and he typically scores touchdowns. That's what Des Bryant does. Des Bryant's only exceeded a 90% snap share in three games this year. And in two of those games, he went over 100 yards. Those are the games in which he was at least relatively healthy compared to games in which he was playing on a bad knee or playing on a bad foot or playing with Brandon Whedon or playing with Matt Castle or playing with Kellen Moore. Des Bryant is now officially healthy with a functioning quarterback. And there should be no surprise that he's posting six receptions for 116 yards and a touchdown. You drafted Des Bryant in the first round this year because Des Bryant is a locked-in WR1 in fantasy. He's the most consistent touchdown-scoring wide receiver in the history of the NFL. He's in his prime, and he's operating in one of the most efficient offenses in the NFL, with one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the NFL. Whether it's Dak Prescott or Tony Romo, either one is going to have time to throw and is going to deliver the ball to Des Bryant accurately, and he is going to convert contested catches, compile yards after the catch, and score touchdowns for you. So yes, I'm buying Des Bryant. And all of you that were lamenting Des Bryant earlier in the year, unfairly dismissing him as a bust... You don't deserve to reap the rewards now. Odds are you traded him away when you shouldn't have. That was one of the questions. Should you sell low on Des Bryant? No, of course not. You weren't selling low on Dante Moncrief. You weren't selling low on Des Bryant. You don't sell low on players that are proven performers in great situations. Just because sell low is a thing doesn't mean you always sell low. We're discerning about the players that we're selling. Some are sell lows, some are not. Des Bryant was absolutely not a sell low. In fact, Des Bryant was one of the great buy lows this year. When you know a player has been proven to be productive and efficient, and he will be in a great situation when healthy, that's a buy low candidate. We're not out there trying to acquire injured players. But if you're going to acquire an injured player, you should be acquiring Des Bryant. You should be acquiring Tevin Coleman. In fact, in the Roto World Writers League, my team is in first place, and I've clinched a playoff spot. And who's on that team? Des Bryant. Who else is on that team? Tevin Coleman, Kenneth Dixon, Stephon Diggs, Tom Brady, 
These are players that missed games early in the season, and I didn't panic. These were players with talent that would be or could be thrust into highly productive situations. So you just put them on the bench, and you play someone else, and you don't panic. This was a classic zero RB roster. Tom Brady, Des Bryant, Brandon Cooks, Larry Fitzgerald, Golden Tate, Stephon Diggs, Robert Woods, and a bunch of running backs like Duke Johnson, Kenneth Dixon, Devontae Booker, Tevin Coleman. That's a zero RB roster that is number one in the Roto World Writers League. Who's in the league? J.J. Zacharyson, Evan Silva, Rich Rebar, Mike Clay, Davis Maddock, Pat Doherty, Matt Harmon. I don't have David Johnson. I don't have Ezekiel Elliott. I don't have Le'Veon Bell. I don't have Melvin Gordon. I don't have an elite running back. And I'm playing against the best of the best, and I'm 8-2. and two. <laughs> Listen to me bragging about being the best of the best of the best. I sound like Donald Trump. Uh, zero RB, just fantastic. It's the best, and we won't do anything else. Which takes me to the next buzzard message. <coughs> Is Donald Trump a buy high? Oh, no. No, 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 no. You can't do it. You can't do it. No! 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 No, you can't box me in and force me to talk politics just because I implemented this silly, I have to read and respond to every buzzard message this week. Of all the weeks to implement this show device, it's the week that this question is posed. I have gone out of my way to not talk about the thing everyone's talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks, the presidential election. Haven't spent a second talking about it. Don't want to talk about it. I'm talking about other things. This show is meant to be a distraction away from the thing that everyone's talking about. You can escape the political discussions that are happening in your office by putting on your headphones and listening to Roto Underworld Radio. That's why we exist. No one needs my voice to be added to this conversation. You turn to Matt Kelly for fantasy football analysis, not political talk. So why are you asking me if Donald Trump is a buy high? Why? Don't do that to me. I don't want to do it. I don't want to answer. Fine, I will. You all have been trying to get me to comment on politics for weeks, and this buzzard got me. I'm trapped, and I must answer. Also, you framed it as a buy high, sell low question, so points to the buzzard for that. You sent the right message, framed the right way at the right time, so I'll answer. Is Donald Trump a buy high? The answer is no. Donald Trump is not a buy high, but Hillary Clinton is absolutely a sell low. I say that because I wasn't inspired by either candidate. I didn't vote for either candidate. Full transparency, I voted for Gary Johnson. Why? Because of course I voted for a Johnson. If I see a Johnson, I go for it. Grab him by the Johnson. But when I'm deciding who to vote for, what I do is I take the candidates' respective platforms and I create an issues matrix weighted by what I think is important. Then I pick the candidate that is the least worst. We talked about this on a previous show when discussing the book All the King's Men, that in order to rise in political life, you have to shed your principles like a backpack 
like a hiker trying to reach the top of a mountain. Those principles will weight you down. You have to leave your principles backpack behind. And the result is the candidates we have to choose from are ethically flawed. So it becomes an exercise in selecting the best of bad choices. But I don't just go to the voting booth and just checkmark the libertarian candidate because I'm a libertarian. I'm not a libertarian. I don't identify as libertarian anywhere. Why? Because I'm not in favor of allowing kids to have rocket-propelled grenade launchers. There are some ridiculous positions on the libertarian platform. So, no, I'm not libertarian. In my judgment, Gary Johnson just happened to be the best of the worst. And I came to that conclusion by sitting down and attempting a rational, objective review of the candidates' respective positions and then making a choice. That was my process. It's pretty straightforward. I felt like I went about it the right way, but when I share this with others... The response is, you did it wrong. You're wrong. You wasted your vote. Shame on you. If you didn't vote for Trump, that's a vote for Hillary. If you didn't vote for Hillary, that's a vote for Trump. What? Let's be clear. Even if my vote was a vote for Trump, even though it wasn't, he wasn't voted in by people. The Electoral College voted him in. The people voted for Hillary Clinton. I voted for neither. So get out of my face with your rah-rah, my-candidate rhetoric. I live in Connecticut. We're not a swing state. The Electoral College renders my vote meaningless. Think about it. If we were starting the political process from scratch, would we implement a popular vote or an Electoral College system? Popular vote. Donald Trump stated flatly, the Electoral College system is broken. Of course, it's an anachronistic, unfair system where some individuals count a lot and others don't count at all. So that's the other benefit of voting for a third party is you're voting against the Electoral College system. It's a protest vote against the Electoral College and the ridiculous two-party system. So that's a checkmark in the favor of anyone from the Libertarian Party or the Green Party. So get out of my face with this rah-rah rhetoric. What is this? I don't vote for the blue team or the red team. I vote based on a candidate's viewpoints on a stack-ranked list of issues that I've compiled. But this is what politics has become. It's become sports. Some ridiculous form of sports. Blue team versus red team. It's like a family funhouse game show. I'm not voting for one family on the family funhouse game show. Red team or blue team. The sportsification of politics is maddening to me. I'm supposed to feel shame because I didn't cheer for one of the two teams trying to make it through some wacky maze called the Electoral College? If I don't cheer for one or the other, I'm wasting my vote? Fuck you! And fuck this sportification of politics! It's not sports! Yet it's so often analyzed and talked about as if it's some absurd sports parody. Sports is entertainment. Politics is supposed to be serious. The two are supposed to be opposites, yet the rhetoric is the same in both spheres, which is why I found the Donald Trump scandal with Billy Bush so ironic. Billy Bush, a member of the Bush family and a host of Access Hollywood, would be the portal into Donald Trump's behind-the-scenes views on women. Yes, yes. 
Has anything ever been more ironic in the history of human civilization? <laughs> Politics as sports entertainment. That's what it's become. And I object to that entire mode of analysis. There's a number of specific things in this sportification of politics that I object to. The first one is the oversimplified labeling system, which enables the name calling. My team's guy is a crusader. Your team's guy is a racist. My team's guy cares. Your team's guy is corrupt. My team's guy's a stud. Your guy's a bum. It's the same thing. It's sports rhetoric in politics. And it needs to be abolished. It's the same lowest common denominator rhetoric that I object to in sports. And then to see it in politics, a place where serious decisions are being made, where people's lives are being impacted, not a fourth and one call. That's so disheartening to me. I'm fine with the my guy's a stud, your guy's a bum rhetoric in sports because that's entertainment. Politics is the opposite end of the spectrum. When we're having serious discussions, you should not be labeling people. You should be critiquing actions. But I object to this even in sports. The name calling. We don't call people names. We critique actions. Mike Clay is not a blowhard. Mike Clay is not a fraud. When you all went to social media and started calling him names, that infuriated me. His analysis of Paul Perkins was misguided, but he's still a very good fantasy analyst. And there's no reason to call him names. It's not productive. And you see those same sentiments and that same name calling in politics times 10. The fans of Clinton, the fans of Trump. What are they doing? They're doing the same thing the knucklehead sports fan does, regurgitating the name calling that the mainstream media analysts incite. Based on what the MSNBC analyst says, run out and call Donald Trump a sexist. Based on what the Fox News analyst says, run out and call Hillary Clinton corrupt. Meanwhile, John F. Kennedy was a raging misogynist. Ronald Reagan's Iran-Contra program epitomized political corruption at every level. History tells us that calling JFK sexist or calling Ronald Reagan corrupt wasn't helpful, provides no answers. These absolute derisive labels nullify all degrees of expression, all nuances lost. And that's so sports! That's the sportification of politics. It's just not helpful to name call in the political arena because the political arena is where the details matter, where nuance matters most. And another objection I have is this my guy bias. So sports, you look at a ballot and you find out who are my guys, who's on the red team, check, 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 who's on the blue team, check, 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 check. He's on my fantasy team. Gotta checkmark him. What are you doing? This isn't sports. You don't go to the voting booth to manage your fantasy team. People in Connecticut that tell me I've wasted my vote. Meanwhile, they're just going into the booth to vote for the blue team. And none of the details to them matter. How do you know that? They're starting at the top. They're checkmarking Clinton. And they're just going down the ballot, checkmarking the men and the women on the blue team. All of the details are lost. All that matters is the decal on the side of the helmet, the patch on the sleeve, the color of the jersey. And that infuriates me. It especially infuriates me in the state of Connecticut, where Democrats vote for Richard Blumenthal, of all people. 
I've been waiting for 2016 since I moved to Connecticut specifically so I could vote against Richard Blumenthal. Why? Because Richard Blumenthal did the most despicable thing of any politician in the United States Congress. He lied about going to Vietnam. He built an entire false persona around the idea that he was a veteran returning from Vietnam with a newfound desire for public service. Someone who appreciates the gravitas of war. Trust me to make the most important decisions, such as are we sending our 18-year-olds to die in foreign countries. Trust me to help make those decisions for you as your representative in the United States Senate. Except he didn't go to Vietnam. He lied. He lied about being in Vietnam and you're electing him because he's wearing a blue jersey? You wanna know why that's the most despicable thing? Listen to a first-hand account of a soldier's experience in Vietnam, and very quickly, very quickly, you will understand why Richard Blumenthal has no business representing people anywhere. After you lie about being in Vietnam, you're not qualified to clerk the city council, much less be a United States senator. Just last week, I heard a first-hand account from someone in Vietnam in the transportation department of the army. He was a truck driver, and his job was to transport munitions and men to the front line. And it's very difficult to get a veteran to talk about their first-hand experience on the front lines. They very rarely do it. You'll hear so many stories told by grandchildren who said on multiple occasions they tried to get their grandfather to talk about what it was like in World War I or World War II, and they refused to talk about it. I had that experience. My grandfather saw action in Iwo Jima, in Guam. He went into all those viper nests. He was a medic in the Marines. Imagine what he saw at Iwo Jima and what he saw in Guam. I can only imagine because when I asked him about it, he changed the subject. He talked about it generally. He never got into specifics. So when you're blessed to hear the specifics of the front line, pay attention and listen. And what I heard from that man in the transportation department about his experience in Vietnam, the thing that gave him nightmares was not any specific offensive or event or explosion. It was the pervasive, haunted looks on the faces of the soldiers leaving the front. That he would have a truck filled with soldiers, all of them staring blankly into space, emotionally broken forever. Those men will never be the same after what they saw and what they experienced. And Richard Blumenthal lied about experiencing that to gain public trust. And then he was exposed and he was still voted into office. Why? Because he's on the blue team. And Connecticut's a blue state. And the details don't matter. And when you listen to men and women talk about their experiences in Vietnam or in Baghdad, you'll understand why my number one issue is anti-interventionalism. When I stack rank my list of issues, that's number one. My number one goal is no more Vietnams, no more CIA-sponsored coups, no more Iraqs, no more Somalias, and no more Richard Blumenthal's.
But you have to dig into the details to understand which candidate is the least likely to get us into another Vietnam, another Iraq. And we're not afforded that. If you watch the debates, the question is not, do you believe we should be meddling in other countries' affairs using our war machine, whether it's the CIA or the army, to try to rig the destiny of other countries? What you got in the debates and what you got in the political coverage, oversimplified narratives. And what do we get in sports? Oversimplified narratives. Think about the most pervasive narrative of the entire campaign. Donald Trump is going to drain the swamp. That sounds like something Nick Saban would say before a road game at LSU. Drain the swamp. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's hollow, meaningless rhetoric. You could swap the narratives between a political press conference and a sports press conference, and you could barely tell the difference. And that's a problem. Donald Trump is going to drain the swamp. Number one, that's a gibberish word soup. Number two, if anyone is going to reduce the size of government, which is the supposed meaning of that analogy, then it's not going to be Donald Trump. It's a book written five years ago about narcissism. And the entire first chapter is an anecdote about Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is the quintessential narcissist. Donald Trump has engineered everything in his life to serve him. That's not me calling Donald Trump a name. That's not me assigning Donald Trump with some overarching label. Those are psychologists analyzing the behavior of Donald Trump over the decades and by consensus concluding that he is a narcissist. That's not some politicized label. That's a diagnosis. When has Donald Trump, of all people, ever acted against his own best interest? Never. Never. It's never going to happen. For the man who leads the government to reduce the size and the scope and the power of government would be, by definition, acting against his own best interest. And that's not something that Donald Trump has ever done. There's no evidence that suggests that he is capable of doing that. In fact, the evidence is the opposite, that he's the last person in America who's wired in a way that would suggest that he would reduce the size of government if he ever became the leader of that government. So Donald Trump is going to drain the swamp is the most empty phrase in the history of the human language. Saying it is just words, empty words. And that is so sports because sports is the global leader in empty words. And the words are the most empty when the sports commentators comment on politics. Recently, Ernie Johnson from TNT's basketball halftime show treated us to a political monologue. Yes. And he received universal applause after that monologue. Oh, Ernie. Beautifully said. Someone had to say it. And you did, Ernie Johnson. Bravo. What the hell did Ernie Johnson say? I listened to the Ernie Johnson monologue and all I heard were words. Words saying nothing. You can just string together words. It doesn't mean they have to have meaning. And in the case of Ernie Johnson, he strung together a two-minute monologue that said nothing. He said, I didn't vote for anyone on the ballot and I hope Donald Trump does a good job. We should give him a chance. And by the way, I'm a Christian. Thumbs up. Okay. And that's what you got for us, Ernie Johnson. Let's kick it over to social media, see what social media has to say. Oh, Ernie! Oh, yes! Preach! Preach! 
journey. Preach what? An old white guy saying give Donald Trump a chance? That's what you're applauding? An old white guy saying give Donald Trump a chance is some of the lamest sentiment in the history of politics. He said nothing and he was celebrated. Yay! Ernie Johnson spoke words! Fuck Ernie Johnson!